0: Part Four, Chapter Six of Life and Lillian Gish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Life and Lillian Gish by Albert Bigelow Payne. Part Four, Chapter Six Reliving the Years. It became our custom to work two afternoons a week. Tuesdays and Fridays, and on the hour I always found her ready. Whatever engagement she made, she would keep it. Whatever promise, even a partial one, I think she was born with that conscience. And the years of rigid picture appointments had kept it in repair. Griffith had said to her, You as the star must never fail to be there. The others will take their cue from you. You must be on time." and she always had been on time and ahead of time. Once, by a lapse of memory on my part, I missed an appointment when we were to see one of the old pictures together. If she had scalded me with censure, I should have felt better. If she had even shown a little irritation, instead of anxiously helping me to find excuses, I could better have borne it. Five minutes later it had passed from her memory, but it refuses to pass from mine. We saw a number of the old pictures that winter, as has appeared in earlier chapters. Lillian in Broken Blossoms, the picture that had made her the world's darling, it is still today recognized as the highest point touched by the pictures for beauty and artistic perfection. I insisted on seeing this picture twice, for it seemed to me her masterpiece. From the moment she enters the picture her whole attitude her face her hands her feet her bowed shoulders and bent back every part and feature of her tell her crushed stunted trampled life of course her wistful beauty added to the pathos of it all but lillian without beauty if one can conceive that possibility would have achieved a triumph when she crosses the street stoops to pick up the tinfoil which she gathers to sell, looks into the shop window, touches the flower she wants. One's heart turns fairly sick for the broken child. She had not wished to play the part, because it was of a child of twelve. I wanted Griffith to get a girl of that age, but a girl of twelve could never have done it. She did not answer, only mention that she had been ill at the time. Do you consider it your best picture? She hesitated. If not, what would be your choice? Again she hesitated. Then, White Sister, perhaps? We saw that, too. And Ramallah? And poor little Mimi? And Hester Prine, Made when Lillian had become, beyond all question, first lady of the screen. It was toward the end of March that we saw the last of her great silent pictures, Wind. The motion picture had arrived at mechanical perfection when it was made. It was one of the several swan-songs of that ill-fated year. I thought it a remarkable picture, beautiful in its stark unbeauty. It only seemed unfortunate in that it presented the most sordid of human aspects against a background of wind-cursed wastes, Lillian watched it almost without a word. I think she approved her part in it, and why not? Technically she was at her best. We drove home rather silently. It was the exact opposite of broken blossoms, I ventured to say. You mean that that was sheer beauty, while this But this had beauty, too, don't you think? Great beauty, the illusion of blowing sand, Letty's cumulative terror of it. Those were classic things. But I cannot imagine going through the torture of seeing it again. The ending didn't save it. No, I wanted it to end with her complete madness, with her rushing out into the wind, vanishing in the storm. They wouldn't let me. They thought they were giving it a happy ending. I suppose so. We saw one more picture after that, The Enemy, her last silent film, and our winter was at an end, a winter during which, by a form of eternal recurrence, exactly symbolic of Ospensky's duplicate reincarnations of the past, I had watched her relive the years, change from the young girl who had played Elsie Stoneman, to the mature. And finished actress of The Wind, of One Romantic Night, of Chekhov's Helena. And in watching, I seem to guess something of her secret. Chiefly, as I believe, it lies in the fact that she does not do violence to herself by making herself over into the part she presents. She studies the environment, the period, the hundred contributing details of the situation, then lives her part in the play as she might have lived it in reality she takes on the psychology of it what she conceives to be such and in some subtle fashion fuses it with her own always it is lillian who is playing and always you want it to be lillian just as all those people she has played esther prine mimi the white sister poor little lucy burrows and helena would wish to be Lillian. If they could see her in their parts, and the nearer they could be like her, the better White Sister and Hester Prine and Helena and the rest they would make. I am not saying that hers is the best dramatic method. My equipment does not warrant that positive statement. I am only saying that the effect she gives us is not of acting, but of life itself sometimes i feel that i have dwelt over much on the subject of lillian's beauty again i feel that i have said very little it is such a tremendous thing when considered in its relation to her material being such a baffling thing she is not richly proportioned in height five feet four and one-half inches her weight is one hundred and ten pounds true her slender feet are small her limbs shapely but Her arms are full long, her expressive hands rather large, her shoulders narrow, her bust that of a young girl. It is strange, but these very defects, defects in another, add to the charm that surrounds her like an aureola. Her face! I cannot write about her face. I suppose the classic purist might take it to pieces discovering a variety of faults. Let him do so in doing it he will miss lillian altogether her beauty and the magic of it it has often been likened to music the strains of debussy which is well enough as far as it goes and i have found it in the heart-cry of Mascani's intermezzo in the eve of saint agnes in the dying fall of the londonderry air to say that it is spiritual only partly tells the story it is that, but it is something more. It has a haunting, eerie quality that has to do with elfland and lonely moors. The face that's seen by the homing lad at evening leaves him forever undone. Scores of men and women too have written of it, have felt its strangeness. Some have tried to write of it lightly, but underneath you feel the magic working. They have glimpsed. Diana's silver horn, and are forever changed. End of part four, chapter six, recording by John Brandon.